Hey guys, my name is Jordan Koss. Welcome to the Almost Essential Podcast. This 16-episode series is based off my final project for my Doctorate of Ministry degree at Fuller Theological Seminary. The title of that final project is Almost Essential Evangelists, Improving Retirement Asset Accumulation for Mainstream Church of Christ Pastors. In this series, we will interview eight different specialists in eight separate episodes. And we will also interview two pastors from each of eight different regions around the U.S. This final project was inspired by 10 years of ministry in three different churches of Christ from Georgia to Northern California from 2010 to 2019, as well as my time as a financial professional in training in 2020. That is where I learned about the retirement crisis America is in and will be experiencing in the coming years. Now, I have three goals for this podcast. One, provide an accessible, denomination-specific qualitative conversation for Church of Christ pastors and leaders. Two, introduce leaders and listeners to retirement vehicles and strategies they may not have heard about before. And three, provide encouragement, motivation, and knowledge to save for the last third of life. Thank you for listening and enjoy. All right, welcome to the Almost Essential Podcast once again. My name is Jordan Koss. I will be your host today in this episode. I believe this is episode 10, the 10th episode we've been recording in a 16-episode series. All right, and with me, as always, is my co-host, Lars. Lars, go ahead and say a few words about yourself. Yeah, 10 episodes in. If you've been with us the whole time, hopefully you're not bored of hearing us talk but i'm excited about uh, these conversations right because we're not just hearing from experts we're hearing from people who are living this out as pastors and i get to serve pastors as the church relations director at bushnell university in the pacific northwest um and you know in the restoration movement sometimes we're a little disconnected our colleges try to be the glue between um some of the churches but I think some spaces like this, conversations about retirement and really practical things um, are really, really helpful spaces for us to step into. So privileged to be part of the conversation um, with you, Jordan, over the past, what, we've known each other now, uh, eight years or something, seven something years like is coming up. It's crazy, 2016 or something like that. And yeah. um, and then uh, now into kind of this part of our life where we're trying to help others. And um, I'm grateful for your project at Fuller. So, Well, I'm grateful for that you decided and agreed to be my co-host, man, because you, uh, you're you bringing a cool perspective as well, being an accounting major and teaching uh, related courses in the master's level there at Bushnell. Go Bushnell. All right. Um, sure. And with us uh, this week in this episode are two uh, COC pastors from the Southeastern region. That's probably the, uh, when we think of the Southeast, that's the heart land of churches of christ and with us today one of our one of these pastors is bob turner from memphis tennessee bob go ahead and say a few words about yourself thanks jordan and lars i'm uh, uh the senior minister white station church of christ iglesia de cristo I took an unusual route to become a preacher i spent 11 years as a theological librarian and i mm. and then um, in 2020 took over this post mm. so We've been in Memphis since 2005 as a family, and so I'm thrilled to have this conversation today. Yeah, great. And you're originally from Ohio, right? 
I am. Yeah. I went to um, first 18 years and then I uh, went to Harding University in mm-hmm. 2000. Harding Graduate School, which became Harding School of Theology, where I met you, Jordan, in I did that in 2004, finished up in 2008 or nine, And so I, I, I grew up in a smaller church, and we'll get to that smaller church. Yeah. Now I work in a church that's not huge, but has a larger church dynamic as it comes to professionalization and finances. Yeah. Right, right, right. Awesome. And then also with us today is Nathan Diller, and he's currently serving in Columbus, Georgia. Nathan, say a few words about yourself. Yeah, thanks, Jordan and Lars, for having me on. And uh, uh, like you said, I'm I'm working here in Columbus, Georgia, with the Rose Hill Church of Christ. I graduated from Freed Hardeman and then went ahead and got my Master's of Divinity there as well and finished that up a couple of years ago. Uh, was out in Oklahoma for a few years preaching, and now I'm preaching here in, in Columbus at the Rose Hill Church of Christ here uh, in Columbus, Georgia. Um, you know, my wife and I are celebrating this week the uh, first birthday of our firstborn. So we're excited nice. about that. Uh, Silas is turning one this week. So uh, family's fixing to come in here in uh, uh, a couple of days and we're looking forward to that. So appreciate you having me on and look forward to the conversation. Yeah, man. Congratulations on the one-year-old. That's awesome. And then Rose Hill is near and dear to my heart because that was the first church I worked for full-time back in what, 2010 to 2012 as a, as a youth minister. So yeah. yeah and really- you know, I should have I should have uh, tried to get some dirt on you after <laughs> round and stuff. I, I forgot to do that though. So uh, the, the listeners will miss out on that one. Okay. Too, that's too bad. That's too bad. All right. Maybe Lars and Bob will give you some of that from uh, graduate school days and ministry. All right. So let's just jump in into question one. And that is uh, you were asked to read a portion of uh, what I've written in terms of the sociological Stone Campbell sociological factors that perhaps led to Church of Christ pastors, at least some struggling with uh, accumulating assets for retirement. And in that historical exploration, sociologically speaking, I examined, and it was the librarian, I believe, at ACU that put me on to this. I think uh, Clarice Berryhill is her name. Um, She she said, look at at this aspect of it. And I was like, okay, I'll do that. And uh, I found some cool stuff, stuff I had never heard of before. But I examined how the pastor system controversy as one of the top three controversial issues in the early Stone Camel movement was due more to our sociological origins and location than anything else, and also contributed to uh, the problem we have today with saving for retirement. And if you want to start talking about sociological issues and background to Churches of Christ and the Stone Camel movement, I mean, David Edwin Harrell is like the go-to source. Uh, the Quest of a Christian Nation, I believe, was his second uh, volume. And in his series where I got a lot of this information, he's written several articles too. you can find online for free. But one of his more famous quotes is the 20th century churches of Christ are the spirited offspring of the religious rednecks of the post bellum South. Now that's a mouthful and uh, something that could be uh, mined a lot. But uh, after reading that section, guys, what were your thoughts? What stuck out to you uh, about that? I'll start. I, yeah, I've never thought about this before. So I was I found this incredibly helpful. Um, I had heard about being kind of the pastor question. And of course, some churches of mutual edification tradition kind of are still there. But I had never, ever thought about the relationship between rural churches and their sociological context and their opposition to located 
pastors. I've never thought about this and how it would affect retirement. So great work. But thanks. That was the very first thing is this is new to me. Okay. Nathan. Let me uh, let me ask you just for some clarification that might be helpful for the uh, listeners. I think I know what you mean, but when you talk about the pastor system, mm-hmm. um, some people are probably going to hear you saying pastor system as one pastor over a mm-hmm. church, and then some are going to be hearing you saying a located preacher. Right. Um, so just for clarity's sake, when you say pastor system, you mean? Yeah, I mean... Uh, Alexander Campbell's contempt for kind of the bureaucracy of the pastor system out of the denominations that he was coming from, like Presbyterianism, I believe. Um, but the opposition, based upon Alexander Campbell's contempt for the, his deconstruction of what he came out of, um, his opposition turned into no located, salaried ministers, evangelists, pastors in these individual autonomous congregations. We're not doing that. Uh, evangelists are kind of the brought in for a period of time, paid, obviously, for what they do, but they're not located. They don't stay there. We're not going to give them like an annual salary. Um, they stay, then they go. The elders are the, if you will, pastors of the congregation, the true leaders, ministers, if you will. And the, the evangelist just helps plant and then and leaves once the congregation is kind of on firm footing. Does that help? Yeah, and, and I knew what you meant, but mm-hmm. I'm just thinking of someone that's listening and hasn't necessarily read what you wrote there. They might hear that and, and have different thoughts. Um, no, totally. I, I think I think what you're uh, what you're getting at here is essentially that our sociological and economic background and economics probably can't be understated here um, has had a substantial impact on our worldview. And uh, I don't know who coined this expression first, but that, you know, a person's worldview is their inherited, unquestioned common sense. You know, uh, it's it's the things that just seem to be the way that they are. And I, I think you even mentioned in, in the paper that Alexander Campbell himself was not uh, against for doctrinal reasons. Um a located preacher, however you want to say that, mm-hmm. but within our uh, experience, especially during a time of of poverty and being in rural areas and things like that, a lot of what he had to say influenced a lot of people to have sort of an animosity toward the located preacher as almost a symbol of uh, corruption and greed and so Wealth, forth and so yeah, on. So, of the North, if you will, because a big issue was the, the, you know, the reason why Church of Christ kind of clung on to this anti-pastor system controversy, anti-located salary, was because the rich northern cities and churches had them, and they couldn't. And so it was a, very much a, what did Harold call it, um, a result of the Civil War, basically the regional divide, yeah, um, which is why the Church of Christ took on, took that, took that path. Um, Lars, or Nathan, did you have anything else you want to add at this time? No, go ahead. Uh, okay. I'll jump back in in a moment. Okay. I didn't want to cut you off. Lars, thoughts on that? Well, no, I, yeah, I was going to ask you guys a follow-up question with it. Um, so hadn't heard, or, you know, Bob, you were kind of saying like, I hadn't thought about this at all. Um, you know, what, why do you think we haven't talked about this? Like, uh, and, and Nathan, you mentioned it's a little bit like the thing we inherited, but 
if we don't talk about it, how are we inheriting it? If it keeps getting, you know, that, that that's kind of like the cycle in some ways for me. Um, and maybe, maybe I just ask if you have any personal stories of how you've seen this play out either in the church that you're serving in now or in other churches, maybe that you grew up that, that you kind of see this messaging or this um, story kind of reinforced in ways that are more subtle than like a history book or, you know, a, a conference that says, this is why we don't uh, support, you know, local pastors uh, paid, um, you know, clergy kind of ideas. I mean, obviously we have our, our text maybe that we would go to and say, um, you know, the priesthood of all believers is a huge value, mm -hmm. but, and then that's kind of where my mind goes is that that kind of textual um, critique of the clergy system in other denominations. And so we preach against it when we see, you know, a, a celebrity pastor or a, another denomination kind of living and dying on the, on the cult of personality. But, but I'd be curious for you guys, what you would say is the thing that's kind of keeping this story, this belief system in place. Oh, that's great. Oh, go ahead. No, that's really good. Uh, I do not have an answer. I, I think uh, a few a few shots I would take at this would be first of all, the the publishing organ of Churches of Christ have been college professors, and so in some ways, I mean, the whole we don't have a denomination; we have a network of Christian colleges within the Church of Christ, and right. they, you know, whatever it was said, um, we don't have bishops. We have editors back 100 yeah. years ago. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of people today would say we don't have bishops. We have Christian college presidents. Mm -hmm. And so the in so many ways, that's been the circle of influence. But at the end of the day, like Christian colleges, though they're really affirming of people's faith and they've had a really important role in mission work and other things. But Christian colleges do not have a whole lot of um, a whole lot to do with local ministry work. And mm -hmm. so. I think that in some ways we just haven't really been, if you, I mean, if you think about like people's exposure to preachers who are not their own preacher, um, that person is not going to talk a whole lot about something like the role of a preacher or preacher expectations or what they do and things like that. It's just not what you talk about. So people go to workshops and they hear good preachers on other things, but um, there is definitely idea that I hadn't thought about till now, but like the role of a preacher would almost have to make a case for itself. I, I had one observation when I read this. Yeah. I mean, I've known churches who were in the middle of preacher searches with members openly asking, do we need preachers? Mm. And that's not an unfair question. Mm -hmm. It's just a fascinating timing where it's like, we're going through all this work because we feel like we need this. The congregation isn't even convinced we do need this. And yet what I would say is undisputably like people in the congregation haven't done the math on how much they rely on this position. Mm. And so they're in no way ready to kind of deal with the consequences of not having a, a, a located minister. Um, and so definitely, um, I would say, I would say Church of Christ ministers are caught, this is another issue that's related to governments, but really caught in this weird spot of, in some ways, in smaller churches, you have to justify your existence and justify that you get paid. But then also, people can't live without you. They're not willing to go without you. So the church insists on hiring you, but man, the criticism can be really tough. That's more than you asked for in this podcast, no. but it's true. No, it's good. It's not quite that way. I would say, and I'll say, it's not quite 
that way in larger metropolitan churches. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> like, I mean, I think all of us get criticized, but I would never be criticized. My the the existence of my position at White Station would never be criticized. Like, why do we have a preacher? Like, mm-hmm. nobody would ever say that at White Station. Yeah, they would just yeah. criticize me if they want yeah. to criticize me, but not the existence of my role. Right. And that has something to do with the education, perhaps the sociological nature and position of many of your congregants in Memphis. And as the Churches of Christ have become more of a suburban urban uh, movement and denomination than what they were when they originally came about in the 19th century, early 20th century. And that plays a big role, again, as to why the pastor system controversy was such an issue. Um, Let me go into this thought right here. That I found from one of Harold's articles as well. He says in the 1906 division, Churches of Christ were the torchbearers of the anti-located salaried pastor position when they officially separated from the, the disciples in 1906. But so Churches of Christ were the conservatives, disciples were the liberals um, on this matter of the pastorism controversy. Okay, but by the mid 20th century, Churches of Christ post World War II. Um, moving from rural to urban, um, increasing their wealth, um, they are a particular type of person now that they also want a particular type of minister, and they want, and that resulted in a, a minister that was located and salaried. So by the mid 20th century, Churches of Christ played the role of the liberals or the disciples when they split with the non-institutional churches over this very same role. The non-institutional churches played the role of the conservatives or Church of Christ from 1906. And this is what Harrell calls a reenactment of the process of moving from a sect to a denomination. And I find this very ironic as, you know, growing up a Church of Christ, you know, um, in, in this issue, the, the, the churches that I grew up in who, you know, we're conservative, you know, we stick to the Bible, and yet and this issue, just just ironically, they were they were the liberals on it. And having a located salaried minister is not what Alexander Campbell actually initially taught. Um, any thoughts on that, guys? Well, yeah, a couple of thoughts uh, about what you just said and something about what was said just a moment ago. Um, as far as this particular discussion goes, I think it's important to remember that our worldview, like I said, it's something inherited and unquestioned that that we just see the world this way, and we call it common sense and expect everybody else has it. That common sense changes over time, and what you're describing is a shift in what seems like a common sense way of reading the Bible, which is yeah. to say we now live in a different environment, and it seems obvious that paying someone to to be on staff is a helpful thing to do. Mm-hmm. And if you don't agree with that, you're just kind of, you know, off in the corner, what are you doing? I, I, we don't understand. Um, so it, it's this shift that takes place. But I think at the same time, that also requires some humility on our end to say that we also have that unquestioned worldview, inherited worldview. And the individuals in that time and going through that process they may not have been thinking about their cultural and sociological, economic, whatever factors. They were reading the Bible and they were making biblical cases for and against these things, not necessarily realizing the some of the baggage that was being brought into that discussion. And that's certainly 
let that be a, a lesson for all of us, right? That yeah. um, it can happen uh, at any stage of our life and any mm -hmm. stage of the life of the church that uh, this shift can happen. And it's almost like, when did that happen? You know, well, yeah. the common sense changed somehow and uh, and we didn't necessarily notice it when it happened. Right, right, right. Bob, what, any thoughts on that? Yeah, I think it's a great question. I mean, the, the thing we haven't addressed yet was... Uh, the role reversal of the North and the South in the hundred years since all these people like David Lipscomb were throwing down the hammer on this stuff, right? Yeah, so David yeah. Lipscomb, there's a cholera epidemic in Nashville. Nashville is poor and broke and he goes to these Northern industrial cities and he's like, oh my goodness, these opulent church buildings. Mm -hmm. What would the guy say about the construction cranes over Nashville, Tennessee right now? You know, who has <laughs> the money now? And the church culture of the metropolitan churches in the South, uh, like the one I'm at, uh, th there, there are no churches above the Mason-Dixon line that look like the four largest churches of Memphis. I mean, I mean and so they, in churches of Christ, they, they just don't exist. There mm -hmm. is, all of us can look at Atlanta and Nashville and uh, Memphis and um, Dallas, say, yeah, yeah Dal oh, Dallas for sure. Yeah, right. So you would say these don't even exist. So there's been a huge swing in pendulum relative to wealth distribution and, and definitely churches of Christ and metropolitan cities in the South um, have adopted just a different role in the culture where we would never um, just as in terms of a posture of the culture, we would not say like, if, if, if a, another church does it, then we're against it. We, we just wouldn't say that, that that that's not a good enough reason. Mm -hmm. And we also wouldn't say that we're kind of an economic socio, a socio economic counterculture. Mm -hmm. um, our elders are on their CEOs of companies. Our mm -hmm. elders run major public works projects and um, they sit on board of trustees for different nonprofits. And this is true of every major church of Christ, the South. So, I think the whole landscape has changed. Um, as Nathan has said, just the whole landscape has changed in our set of assumptions we carry about these things. And the question I think that your research brought is, have we updated some of our practices and policies of compensation to match the expectation change of the person in the pew? Mm. When you said that the churches had changed their expectations about having a located minister, it's also churches have changed their expectations of what education level their mm -hmm. preacher comes with right the education in the pew has radically changed mm -hmm. and so you know have people's i mean i'll give you an example like i think people's taste in sermons have radically changed with youtube and with oh, yeah. access to podcasts i mean they just they just they've they've upgraded from what they heard as a child no matter when your childhood was they have got a little bit their, their tastes have gone up in price. <laughs> and, and so the old model of what, what the preaching role is seen as has got to make some adjustments there. Um, because, you know, pe people, the church has changed. Yeah. Lars, any thoughts? Could, okay, go ahead. Nate. Sorry. I was just going to yeah. jump in and say one more thing about yeah. what Lars asked earlier, which was, in, in what sense have do you see evidence of, in my own life, evidence of uh, maybe some of these factors at play? Um, one thing I would just mention is, that, first of all, there's a big difference between serving in a rural church 
church and an urban church. Um, oh, yeah. Uh, not that Columbus, Georgia is a massive city, but it's a good sized place. The um, third largest in uh, Georgia, right? Yeah, something like that. So, yeah. I mean, I think the metro area is 350,000 people. So, I mean, it's it's a city, but um, but it's very different. And um, without getting in, you know, too much philosophy, I, I think that we have at, in our American culture from day one been part of a suspicious and skeptical movement in terms of the broader world view and philosophy um, that everything should be tested and individualism and uh, rationality and logic and so forth and so on. And in a sense, now in a postmodern world, we're still seeing that play itself out. We're just now suspicious even of logic and rationality itself. You know, it's still an extension of that very um, really modern way of seeing the world. Um, one of the ways that plays out, though, is related to education. So a lot of times, um, and I've noticed this more in rural areas, people are skeptical about education itself. Sure. And there's almost a, it's a badge of honor if a preacher did not go to some kind of uh, formal education, whether it be for a bachelor degree, master's degree, doctoral mm -hmm. work, whatever right. it is. Um, it's almost like, don't go to education. They might change your mind kind of mentality. I grew and, up with that. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, sure. And, and, and that is part of very much part of what you're talking about here mm -hmm. in, in your work is talking about how, um, uh, depending on where we are and what our influences are, we have different suspicions in their case of the located preacher because of finances but also there's the education system that that comes into play as well and you know i i want to tell people you know i i, I hope that our faith is strong enough to withstand questioning and uh, mm -hmm. and be challenged so you know there's there's plenty of things to say about that but you do see that especially in i think rural settings oh yeah oh yeah uh we have to move on i want to uh, lars unless you had something you really want to share no, I think I think it's good. Let's. I, I appreciate what you were saying, Nathan, because yeah. I think that's what I was going to say. Even here in the Northwest, we almost have a disconnect from what I like to call the mecca of Churches of Christ in the South, in some of these large metro um, places that are that our schools are often prioritizing. So we might hear stories about these large Churches of Christ doing things, and they're the ones speaking at our big youth conferences or things, but. The majority of churches of Christ, according to the studies, are still these smaller, you know, hundred member or less churches in rural, more rural settings. Right. And uh, and in the Northwest, we have that a lot at play, where they're, um, you know, they might be here in Eugene, Oregon, which is a college town, but it feels much more like uh, kind of an anti-intellectual small town rural um, church of Christ, and. Um, and so I think that's that's a good perspective to remind ourselves of is that whoever we're listening to, whether it's the podcasts or audiobooks or, you know, uh, colleges that we're listening to, sometimes that can distort our reality um, of what is true. And and we want, you know, ministers to find uh, each other who can connect at the level they are at. So you might need to even look outside the Church of Christ grouping, um, if you're in a larger church and there's not any larger churches of Christ around, well, you might have some more in common with the pastor down the street who's in a church that's mid-sized in a, you know, 
or if you're in a small rural town, it might be helpful to find that other small rural pastor um, and connect with those three or four because your your experiences of church size and um, demographics of your church members, like you were saying, Bob, like there's the difference of what people want in their sermon is is really true, but that's not always true for the rural town who's yeah. um, who may not be on on the podcast thing. Um, but yeah, as, as we think about retirement, I'm really curious because we've talked to some people in these other regions like the Pacific Northwest and the Midwest, but, um, I'm curious to hear what you guys have to say about in the South. And, um, I think we've got a good representation. So, um, Jordan, let's, let's dig into retirement. Yeah. Um, let's do that. I want to just to briefly mention Keister study first, and then I think we're going to have to move on. But Lisa Keister is a sociologist at Duke, and she did a study about uh, conservative Protestants and wealth. And what she found was that the religious beliefs of conservative Protestants, like Churches of Christ, contribute to low asset accumulation and thus wealth inequality. And she said contributing factors to their wealth inequality were low educational attainment, early fertility, large family size, low, um, low rates of female labor force participation. And she said, also, conservative Protestants avoid excess accumulation because they agree that money is the root of all evil, that riches prevent knowing God, and saving for retirement is not important. So her proposal is for conservative Protestants to start accumulating wealth more like other groups in order to reduce their wealth inequality. So real quick, have you exhibited these values yourself or have you experienced them, it sounds like, in your own churches you've been a part of? Uh, in your ministry, um, anybody go right ahead. So, yeah, I'll jump in on this one. I haven't read her study. Mm -hmm. So this was new to me. I hadn't thought about this conversation. Boy, there's a lot here. It's um, a lot. It is. I, I, my gut feeling, if that's what you want a reaction to, I'll yeah. just be totally honest. I am not bothered by wealth inequality okay uh as i say this in terms of the preachers versus others mm. i'm bothered by income inequality in the larger culture mm -hmm. um i just would say when i saw these things like people want to have larger families mm. and want mom to stay at home that's a values decision that they've yeah. made for a specific set of reasons yeah and I think that all that is, is, I mean, if, if we take something like Jonathan Haidt's view of people having different social values mm -hmm. and some people are clinging to different parts of the elephant. And I think, I think that's just a choice people are making. And I would find it to be problematic to impose on them my values of saying that wealth inequality is a problem for them. Mm. Clearly, they know that a woman going and working makes more money than her staying at home. This yeah. is not news to them. Mm -mm. I just wouldn't want to socially impose my values on them that way. So yeah, that, that did. And then the other thing is that I don't want to, I don't want to sidetrack this, but yeah, I would love to know, and maybe you say it in your dissertation elsewhere. So I'd be curious and I don't, we don't need to go off the rails, but like kind of um, the theological case for retirement. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I'm yeah. sure you've addressed this in huge. So I, I just think that's, that's gotta be part of it too, that that wouldn't be one of our assumptions. Anyway, uh, that, that was my first thought reading her. 
Mm-hmm. Um, no. I would hate to get in a place where we discourage people from having children and discourage yeah. a wife from staying home just because you could make more money otherwise. Yeah. Or you, your retirement can be that much more, you know, in terms of the final nest egg. Yeah. No, I totally get that. I totally agree to that as well. And and if you, chapter three is all of that theological exploration. Um, and that was fun. And we, and uh, one of the assumptions I made in the study is like, okay, re- retirement, when we say retirement, we're not talking about a 30 year vacation, a 30 year withdrawal. We're talking about how, how can I be a Christian and honor and glory God in these la- this last third of my life? Uh, so let's do away with that negative stereotype and realize that retirement is something we're all going to experience in the American context. Um, so how, how are we going to be able to do that and, and be able to fund that, have enough money to do that well and flourish in that last third of life? Um, any thoughts or, or let's race, let's race and segue into question two, or finally start getting into more of your guys' story. Any thoughts before we do that? Uh, no, I, I agree with what Bob said. That's well yeah. said. And, uh, I had written down something very similar on my, uh, copies. Awesome. Thank you. Awesome. Okay. So question two. Finally, back to to you guys. If you are comfortable sharing, uh, what retirement vehicles do you currently utilize? And if uh, and after that ballpark, how much uh, do you uh, have you have have you saved so much for your retirement? Being in ministry, I don't know how many years you've been in ministry, but those two things: uh, vehicles and ballpark, the amount. Well, I'm I'm happy to happy to go first on this one. Uh, we use several different things, but I, I guess the the bulk of our retirement savings are my wife's 401k, my IRA, and then we got a, a couple other little things like we have an HSA that uh, we can put some more additional money in that can be uh, advantageous for later. But anyway, um, uh, we took and and this might be getting into another question. I don't know, but we sort of focused on getting our student loans, my student loans all paid off first. So mm-hmm. we we did that. And then now we're setting aside um, roughly 15% of our annual income is what we're shooting for. That's great. That's great. Awesome. Bob, what do you think? Yeah. So our vehicles are a 403B that we have through my employer, through mm-hmm. the church, um, and that came, that was a, that was a rollover of what I had accumulated. Mm-hmm. I worked in Christian higher education for 11 years mm-hmm. and they had a, a program there. Nice. That was a TI, a craft that we, we brought over to this. Mm-hmm. Um, my wife is a public school teacher. Okay. So she has an option for a 403B, but then also a, it's a pension, a state, mm-hmm. a state pension fund that is something like 45% of a certain salary. That's great. Uh, that she would receive. Uh, and I haven't talked to her about our amount, so I'll decline giving yeah. how much we have. That's but fine. I, I, our savings is probably in track with what Nathan said. Okay. Um, I use a platform that I would recommend. Is a, There's one thing that we've begun using, which is called Fidelity Charitable, mm-hmm. if, if, if people, listeners might be interested in that. And it is it functions like a stock portfolio, like an index fund. And you yeah. can put money in there if you're not quite ready to give it yet. Mm-hmm. But it's a giving platform that helps you give the charities in the most efficient way. Mm-hmm. Our kids love it. It's a way that we've practiced generosity as a family. So Fidelity Charitable has been great for us. Awesome. But it's not a it's not a retirement. Right, vehicle, right, right. But it's a 
a savings giving vehicle. Okay. That's where we're at right now. Awesome. Great. Okay. And so with that, Teresa Gillarducci that I write about, she I, I base my entire kind of um, argument off of her argument, which she says we're in a American DIY retirement crisis because our retirement system is broken. Our vehicles don't really do what we need them to do. So millions of Americans, majority of Americans are going to be near poverty or in poverty in retirement. And it's going to affect all the younger generations as well, especially as the boomers, all the boomers retire as we get to 2050 and so on. And so she says the new class divide for Americans is one's level of retirement anxiety within this context. How would you rate your uh, level of retirement anxiety as a COC pastor in light of this DIY retirement crisis context? One to 10. Is 10 a lot or is 10 zero? Or let's, say, is, let's, let's say very anxious is 10. Very yeah. anxious? Yeah. I'm not particularly anxious. Okay. Three. Three? Okay. <laughs> yeah, I, I would actually echo that. I would say three or four for me. Okay. Um, uh, and, you know, my wife also works. And so there's a little bit... I think a lot of the anxiety and stress certainly in the past had come from churches paying significantly less than what they're paying on average now and the expectation that your wife doesn't work. And so then there, I mean, how would you not be anxious about the future when, uh, when that's just situations? Yeah. Yeah. Lars, can I, can I say okay. something to, yeah. you said you're an eight. Nathan said he was Lars a three, three or four. Oh, Okay. One thing I wanted to say here, and I thought it was maybe healthy, important to say this, but I, Memphis is one of the lowest cost of living metros in the United States. Mm. And so housing is really affordable. Uh, crime is high. Housing is low. You got to you know, choose what you want to deal with. And mm -hmm. so I think it's really important. Like I would never speak about my lack of anxiety to a person like from Boston or California or whatever, who has a radically different social context relative to cost of living. Yeah. So it is low and it let a lot of home buyers get in very low mm. like us in the, we bought during the great recession. And so I do live in a context where churches pay well and cost of living is low. Mm -hmm. Got it. Yeah. Okay. And here in the Bay area in the Silicon Valley, it's one of the most expensive places to live as well as one of the most expensive housing markets. Yay. Renting. <laughs> All right. Uh, Lars, any thoughts on uh, so far before we move to the next question? Yeah, I mean, I, I think this is a good example, again, of the, the benefits and um, difficulties of our movement, right? Is that where you're at um, is tailored to where you're at. And mm -hmm. sometimes that means you get bonus, bonus, or you get negative, negative. Um, and I think, you know, in Southern California, we were uh, definitely it seemed like we were getting paid less and rent was high. And, um, and there was kind of an assumption that our spouse would work, um, that you could kind of make, make it work. And, and that was actually common for, for many people in, in my kind of age range, you know, mid twenties is that you had to be dual income to, to afford rent or you had to be renting from, you know, working, um, and, and living in, Kind of shared shared housing so I, I do think that this isn't something that's unique to maybe the ministers i would imagine that there are probably other professions in memphis that are the same 
um, boat that you would say like you're getting paid well and you've got housing. Um, so I, you know, I think that's, that's something to, to take into consideration. Now, I'd be curious how you guys talk about retirement with your churches. So, um, uh, you know, maybe was this something that was already established at the church that you were at when you came in, Nathan, you mentioned an IRA. So is your church contributing to that? Do you, is that part of your benefits package? I know you, neither of you are probably relying on your church's match. Uh, it sounds like both of you have spouses that are involved and, and you guys are doing that, but I'd be curious the conversation you had, whether, whether it was in the interview process, whether it's at an annual review or, or how you talk to your church about um, your retirement. So maybe, maybe Nathan, you can go first. Sure. And I, I'm in uh, a bit of a smaller church dynamic. I mean, mm-hmm. our church is maybe around um, probably on average in terms of attendance. I don't know about on the roll or whatever, but mm-hmm. week in, week out, about 150 people, 145, something like that. Um, we don't have any kind of big setup for retirement Uh However, they do treat me very well in terms of compensation and um, uh, sufficiently that I'm able to set aside what I need to set aside and uh, mm-hmm. uh, in terms of my long-term planning. So there's no match, no real conversation. It's just uh, they're, they're taking care of me and I'm taking care of myself in a sense uh, in terms of uh, I, I am a DIYer, I guess, uh, to, to mm-hmm. use the expression there. Um, but, but, you know, my, my anxiety, I said at three or four, uh, I am reminded though of James's, you don't know what tomorrow will bring, let alone yeah. what next year will bring. So that number I'm sure will fluctuate, but uh, that's <laughs> kind of where I'm at right now. Yeah. Okay. Bob, how would you answer Lars's question? Well, yeah, this is something I thought about when I took this job in 2020. So I came out of working for Harding university mm-hmm. for the school of theology for 11 years. And one of the real, one of the interesting things about Harding was uh, they they weren't known for huge salaries, but they had a matching program with 401k contributions or 403b, whatever it was, that Harding would match your contribution to your retirement at a level of 10%. Wow. So, so that was really distinctive. I never heard of another Christian college doing 10%. And um, so... When I took the job in 2009, a lot of the people who were hiring me and stuff like that said, listen, you're young. We're just going to tell you this job is all about the benefits. So <laughs> take advantage of the health care and just you you got to find a way to, to give 10 percent, put away 10 percent because you're going to that's that's a huge gain in your. Yeah. Your wealth. Yeah, that's awesome. So I came, Yeah, I came to White Station and um, I said to our the people I was talking to, I said, OK, what do we what do we have here? And I just put on the table for them. I said, listen, I, I don't think you're going to be able to do 10%. Uh, could we do five? And they were agreeable to that. And I was really grateful. And we've we've really done our best to get that staff wide mm-hmm. and uh, to really make putting that money aside to be part of the culture. And so that was one of the things I really went to bat for was to say that I want the rest of the people in our ministry team to have access to that kind of thing. So Okay. I think I think having a matching program, we have a four hundred three B through Vanguard. Yeah, I think it's a really good thing that even a, even other churches could look into. But I, I really prefer incentivized packages, like for ministers. Like every minister is going to want a lot of cash, 
but I, I'm I'm trying to look at how we can raise that match. Okay, great, awesome, Lars. Any follow up? No, I think that's good. I, I mean, I think anytime you can build on, on a previous conversation, this is where we're coming from. I had uh, a match program; it was a small amount. I think they would match up to two percent or something like that at my first church, and then uh, my second church didn't have a match, and so uh, we started having that conversation in the interview process, it didn't ever really come to fruition, but, um, it was worth, you know, having the pattern, um, showing them how it was. And I, I think the, um, kind of the, the idea of thinking about, as Bob was saying, what I can do is not just advocating for me, but it's advocating for others who are going to be the, the pastor or the minister there in the future or the children's minister there, or, you know, uh, you're advocating for a system that's going to care for people who are going to be there after you serve. And so it's the old boy scout thing, you know, leave the campsite better than you found it. And I, I kind of think about that when it comes to retirement and then these other um, things, can we put into place processes and systems? I mean, you don't have to reinvent the wheel. There are other churches that will Mm -hmm. quickly share what they're doing. Um, And Vanguard is a great one to start with. Don't get caught up in all these other um, things that maybe aren't as good of vehicles, but, um, but yeah, worth, worth looking at. Um, but yeah, I think we've, we've got a few more good questions, Jordan. Um, yeah. Should we skip four or cause that already been answered? You think? Yeah. Yeah. No, I think five is good. Okay. Let's go with five then. So do you guys think being in churches of Christ has hurt or helped your asset accumulation for retirement and explain? Well, when I, when I read that question, I said uh in what sense um because i i mean education schoolwork that's never been a a major challenge for me i've had to apply myself of course but do i think i could have gone out there and got a different degree and been in a secular field and maybe done better for myself financially maybe um but in terms of has being in the churches of Christ hurt me as opposed to being in the Methodist church or something like that. I don't really know the answer to that question. Cause I don't really know what their financial situation is like in, in uh, you know, the Methodist church or Episcopalian church or something like that. I'll just say that for my experience, I know my experience is not everyone's experience, but for my part, I have found that being in the churches of Christ has there are challenges, but yeah. the the churches that I have been working with um, have treated me very well. And uh, I think there's a growing consensus that maybe 50 years ago, preachers were not being set up appropriately for living a life of devotion to the work and not having to stress or try to secretly get side jobs or whatever the case might be. So uh, for my, my experience, which is limited to just my experiences, but it's been, uh, it's been a blessing for me. Great. That's good to hear, man. Bob, what do you think? Yeah, I don't, I don't know how to base. I don't, I have no idea what Methodist preachers in town are doing. I have no clue. One thing I would say in the church of Christ, I had, I worked for Harding for 11 years and worked around uh, these role models who understood my life and I understood their life. And uh, one thing I would say about our culture that we had is I was just around people who modeled for me exactly what your life could look like on this amount of money that you could have enough to spend and enough to be really, really generous. Mm. And I really believe that working on that campus on Cherry Road uh, Mm. taught me generosity in a profound way. 
Hmm. And while that doesn't necessarily, you know, you say, well, okay, they taught you how to give. How did that teach you how to, how to save? I found that I had pivoted my worldview from thinking about saving as something that was just about security to thinking about saving as building up money that I can give later. And that really has helped me a lot. And so my wife, Andrew, and I just think about just how do we accumulate money to give, accumulate to give. So that was all in the Church of Christ. All those people that I would name are Church of Christ people. So I'll say it was pretty positive. Okay, great, great. And so the next question is, what do you feel are the challenges? And we've probably already touched on some of these. What do you feel though are the challenges to save for retirement as a pastor? And also what are the benefits, uh, if any, as a pastor within Churches of Christ? Well, I would say that as far as challenges go, like I said, I am a DIYer. So mm-hmm. there is uh, there is the challenge of doing some research to determine what is a good course of action. And uh, one, we, we don't know the future. Um, investments uh, are something that we take a lot of security in. Uh, it's funny. Some of them are called securities, right? But, <laughs> uh, but we have ultimately no control of what will happen in the future, but we can do the best with the knowledge that we have. Uh, I think a challenge, though, if you're not someone that is particularly inclined to doing some of that research and um, listening, reading, whatever the case might be to come up with a, a solid plan for the future, then you might see, you know, a few reels where a guy gives some advice and take that and go out there and try to live that for a year. And then here are some more advice and go out and try to live that for a year. So I do think it is a challenge if you're not a person with a personality and and maybe an inclination towards doing some mathematical stuff and uh, doing some financial stuff. So the DIY aspect is a, is a challenge for sure. Okay. And when you say DIY, uh, what do you mean, Nathan? Okay, yeah. Well, what I mean is I, I'm not putting into a 401k from okay. a company. I, I went out and set up my own IRA and I put money okay. in whenever I put it in. And right. nobody tells me, I, mom and dad don't say, hey, you need to put into your IRA. You know, I, I have to do that. So I, and inside the IRA, I got to make the choice of what vehicles am I going to put the money into that I think are going to grow in the future. Um, and, you know, uh, Bitcoin all the way. No, just kidding, kidding, <laughs> kidding. Uh, don't recommend that. But, uh, oh, but man. you know, I, I'm just saying I'm making the, uh, the choices there and nobody's really babysitting me in the process. Gotcha. Gotcha. All right, Bob, what, what, how would you answer question six? Well, yeah, my guess would be that the biggest threat to a Church of Christ minister is just mobility and job insecurity. Yeah. Um, so you, you move around a little bit more than the average person. You might mm-hmm. have some gaps and nobody else looks after it for you. So you don't have a consistent leadership who's negotiating for you. You don't have a union or a teacher's right. group or something like that. Public school, public employees have groups who look after that. But um, I can't think of any other specifically. Yeah. yeah uh, the other thing I would ahead. say, hey, I, I would jump in. I mean, the Church of Christ thing, as we got right at the very beginning, it's like uh, Lars said the average Church of Christ is like the average congregation size is 100 or less. That's right. And then the other one is, mm-hmm predominantly a rural group yeah. and so those are just two two things that are going to are going to financially be against you right 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 and uh, nathan as you call yourself diy perhaps that is uh, a result of growing up in churches of christ because churches of christ if you want to think ecclesiologically in terms of how uh they have thought and about the evangelist the pastor 
and how that evangelist pastor functions within the church, it seems to be like a very DIY uh, denomination. And therefore, for you to call yourself DIY, that that make that makes sense. Um, J. Curtis Pope, where I get the title of the podcast and the overall final project, J. Curtis Pope talks about how the evangelist, the pastor within the Church of Christ Ecclesiology functions in, in a quote-unquote almost essential capacity. Um, and so I, when I read that, I was like, that's a very inter- interesting way of putting that. What are your thoughts on his designation of evangelist pastors in Church of Christ as almost essential? Well, I think that's well well said. I, I do think that part of the job that I see when I'm reading first and second Timothy and Titus, which, you know, churches of Christ typically look at as sort of the, uh, you don't need a job description. There's your job description kind of thing, uh, which I get, but uh, also it helps to have a job description, but oh, nevertheless, yeah. uh, you, you read first and Timothy, first and second Timothy and Titus. And one of the things that you see being stressed is investing in leadership, investing in the training of elders and deacons and all of that that goes with that. So uh, it's all it, we should strive to make ourselves almost essential, right? Um, churches might view us as almost essential sometimes, but we're wanting to, like Paul says in Ephesians, equip the church for ministry. And so we we are essential. We're part of God's plan for the church, mm-hmm. but we want to not just take the stage and be the preacher guy. True. Uh, we want to be equipping with hammers and shovels and you know mm-hmm. rakes whatever the the spiritual tool might be to the people so that they can go out and do the ministry so yeah i think that's fair i, I think that the challenge is some people would say uh you are not at all essential you know there's always going to be those people that uh, <laughs> yeah, you just yeah, kind of yeah. have to brush it off keep going and uh kind of like me and my you know hey i'm doing a good thing i can't get distracted with this so yeah. let's keep going yeah Bob, what do you think about that phrase? It, well, no, it's it, it, it's great, and I, I love uh, I love the stuff about you know equipping and, and and doing it. I was kind of occurred to me as we were talking here, you know, as the ministry expectations change, the behavior of people in churches has radically changed. Also, and I'm just I'm just wondering, like a lot of these rural churches and small town churches were built by people who were highly religiously sectarian, which has its own problems. But, but, but these are people who like went to church three times a week. These are people who believed they were the only ones and that they were the torchbearers of salvation in their communities. And they were going to build that building with their own hands or they were going to make sure it's so identical. That culture has died away. Mm. And I just wonder, um, it does take a person in a church to recruit and equip people for ministry. Mm-hmm. The priesthood of all believers is not presently running itself in American society. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I don't, I, I mean, a person who used to go to church whenever the doors were open is now attending three Sundays a month. Right. Instead of three times. Th- a week. These are the, yeah. that's right. And, mm-hmm. and this is not supposed to be a big criticism, mm-hmm. But I do think most people have maybe not been pivoted and said, man, our, our person that we are, that we are supporting as a church, wow, that's a really important job because they're not just a preacher. They're everything Nathan just said. Uh, this person is equipping. This person is building leaders. This person's kind of a CEO. This person is our, our lead communicator, both in person, orally, 
also oftentimes through social media, all kinds of things like this is, this is the big role and this isn't to bash local churches, but people in terms of attendance and probably in terms of giving are not quite bringing to the table what they did probably 50 years ago when we developed these theologies of, do we really need a located minister? Right, right, right. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's interesting as I teach a, a class, I, on stewardship, I reference a book and I don't see it here, but um, it's called Not Your Parents Offering Plate. And uh, it talks about how colleges and other nonprofits are, you know, grabbing for people's attention, their giving and things um, be, by communicating the mission first, not just passing a plate. And we kind of have for a long time in churches just passed the plate, even if we've moved to a box during COVID or online giving, like, we just assume that people every week are thinking about giving and um, and we have to think differently about that. But I, I mean, I think also, you know, you're talking a little bit about the DIY thing. Um, what you were saying, Nathan, is is really kind of comes back to that rugged individualism that's part of the air that we breathe. And and I think more than a lot of churches, the the Stone Campbell movement, especially kind of the Campbellites of of the Churches of Christ, really latched onto that individualism motif and an individual salvation is part of evangelical culture in general. And we're kind of evangelical adjacent, if you will, but, but it's very much uh, present in our churches being autonomous in the ways in which we talk about spirituality. And, and so as the individual's role of being in their churches, you're talking about Bob, like they, my, my grandfather was a preacher for a little logging town here in the Northwest. And uh, his grandmother kind of drilled into him that he would write the check back to the church. So he got paid to preach, but then he gave that back to the church and he worked full time, but he also did Bible studies. And he was really planting this church that was really a couple families that was growing and it, it got to a substantial size, not too dissimilar to what churches are now, um, you know, 80, 90 people, but that town no longer exists. I mean, it's, Mm -hmm. it's no longer a town. And I, I wonder if that imagination is still lingering a little bit in there that, you know, you can, uh, you can work and preach. And now we kind of have this expectation though, that we have these preachers who are there, um, doing these doing more than what they were asked to do more than what my grandfather was kind of doing he wasn't leading an organization he was just having bible studies and showing up on sundays you know um not too dissimilar from the work that the individuals and the members were doing at that time and uh and i actually see some glimmers of hope where actually there's some ministry models like this kind of cropping back up where a, a retired um, person comes into a rural setting and kind of a second career pastor uh, motif. And it's actually really healthy because he's not relying on the mm-hmm. church for the financial expectation, but, but there's some freedom in his role and what he can do. There's not the burden of expectations to, uh, to, yeah. to bring to bear. Um, but yeah, so I, I think as you kind of move into that, um, uh, kind of sphere, I, I was curious, Nathan, a little bit about um, what you think education would look like. So if you didn't get taught or your church isn't providing that education, um, 
what what would education at a college like at in a seminary class or um, what would that look like for you that that would be helpful? Um, we've talked a little bit about some of the negative education that was going around years ago about opting out of Social Security and things. But um, yeah, now that you're into ministry, what, what would be some things you would say this would have been helpful to know in advance? Well, I can tell you that um, where I went to school, there was a class about ministers, finances, and taxes. It, it was one class within a semester. So it was, you know, an hour, basically. Right. Um, that That's great. It's a good start. Uh, but, but they're really, I mean, we're talking about something that has a lot of ins and outs and something that's very complicated. And so uh, I think it would be helpful for maybe it's not a whole semester, but, but maybe it's half a semester of dealing with some of these topics and mm -hmm. uh, thinking about them. I, I think that one of the things we didn't mention as a, a benefit to retirement savings that plays into the education is the housing allowance. Yeah. Uh, the housing allowance is a, is a huge uh, aspect of ministry ministerial compensation, you know, um, and do you want the church to provide you a parsonage or not? Well, if you don't have any education on the subject, you might think, hey, they're going to give me free rent at this place. I'm just, I want to live there, you know, not realizing that probably the most significant vehicle for people in terms of building wealth is buying a house and the equity that's going to be built up over time. Um, certainly the biggest single investment that most people make in their lifetime. So um, I think just a lot of conversation needs to happen and probably, you know, six weeks, maybe more of conversation about taxes, uh, housing allowance, and then just the basics of um, budgeting finances, those kinds of things to prepare people fresh out of school to, to no, oh, nice, nice. Lars, any any uh, follow up on that? No, I think that's that's good. Yeah, I mean, I think we're we're getting there to some of the things we would say. Question ten, some things that we would want to tell a okay. new pastor or train. Um, but you might have a couple questions yeah. you want to talk about before that. Yeah, I do. Uh, I want to go back to something Bob said about the kind of the financial viability of churches as a result of Christians who are still faithful tenders, but faithfully tending less. Um, there's a book that came out recently by uh, Mark Demias. I think I'm pronouncing that correctly. It's called The Coming Revolution in Church Economics, Why Ties and Offerings Are No Longer Enough and What You Could Do About It. And so he just talks about, and I mentioned this in my theology chapter, um, he, he notes four factors that will require economic innovation in a local church moving forward. First, a growing burden on the middle class. Second, a marginal increase in religious giving. Third, a shift in generational approaches to giving. And fourth, a slowing growth and aging population with a more racially and ethnically pluralistic demographic, which will greatly affect church budgets and lead to a loss of revenue and a fundamental reshaping of the way congregations are funded. So a fundamental reshaping of the way congregations are funded and how also perhaps the pastors paid and also how they uh, innovate to how to support them in terms of retirement savings. Um, had you guys heard of that book before? Have you read that or thoughts on what he had to say? I hadn't heard of it. Um, those are good things. I, I think mm -hmm. these are, there, there's definitely a major shift 
a declining sectarianism in churches will possibly produce less money in the plate. It's just well, mm. like there's no question for churches of Christ that like the exclusivism had a, a lot of negative, but like there was some benefits. And like if you believe if you believe your church was the one and only church that you're going to kind of be a little differently invested in it. Oh, yeah, I, totally. I, I would say. I, I would say definitely like there's going to have to be and hopefully some of our social justice aims will do this, but like there's going to have to be a repivoting back to thinking that like financial matters are right at the core of the gospel. Mm-hmm. And if we're constantly going to preach about good news to the poor, mm-hmm. then we need to really ask Christians, like, what does money mean in your life? And so I, I think that uh, helping Christians see themselves in the middle of social justice, not the government at the middle of social justice. And like, yeah. this begins with me and my heart and my wallet and feeling really comfortable talking about money as a preacher. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I talk about it a little more than average. And I have partners in our church members who come, who have come to me and said, like, you should talk about it more. You should talk uh-huh. about it more. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, yeah. That's great. That's I, great. I mean, we just think about like the, the proportions of what people are being discipled by in their life. They are being discipled by a culture of consumerism mm-hmm. for hours and hours a day. And they're being culture. They're being discipled by a message of what we're talking about today for 20 minutes a weekend. So, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, well, I mean, it's, it's one of the ways we can think about, uh, and I like, Mark Demise's book. I I was part of a reading group that did it in Southern California before the pandemic, and um, and as we were looking at it, it really reframed the decline. Like as we, you know, maybe on the West Coast we can see the decline quicker than maybe in the Southeast, but um, and we talk a little bit about that in the Church of Christ studies with Dan Gramberg and stuff, but um. As, as we think a little bit about the decline in our attendance and our giving and all these other things that maybe are part of it, one of the ways to reframe that is just more motivation to focus on stuff that's actually the gospel being lived out in our community. And so it's not actually a negative thing that we can't rely on the plate anymore. It actually motivates us to use our property, our space um, to, to actually get free from that. Sometimes it, it's not a book about just sell your building. But it is often about rethinking about how you use your church space and your property and how that can then be a partnership with other nonprofits in your town or uh, doing good work in your city. And so a lot of the organizations that I was doing this book study with, they were working with local food banks. They were getting grants from the city and from the state government um, to be part of stuff that was paying for their ministry. Um, And so I think there's just all kinds of other funding sources out there that actually causes to be more missional in our mindset. And, uh, and so the coming decline, you know, whatever it is, um, it can actually be a good thing because it can change our imagination a little bit. We were talking earlier about the things that we've just kind of believed are true, even if they aren't necessarily. Yeah. So thinking about imagination, um, what do you question eight? What do you feel is the theological and ethical ideal in terms of saving for a living in retirement? Well, you know, that question could be about 30 minutes, I guess. Oh, I know, I know. But I'll I'll, I'll give my, uh, this does not have uh, footnotes or Bible references at the end, but 
you know, uh, essentially the the idea that Christians should have their first motivation be to give is something that we should not lose. The fact that we want to be prepared for the future and we want to navigate that is wonderful. Mm-hmm. Um, but generosity should always be on the forefront of, of our mind. So my, my thought is we want to give till it hurts and save till it hurts and sometimes mm-hmm. spend when it hurts. Um, you know, the, the idea is if you're, if you're focused on, I want to give and I want to set aside, not so that I can, uh, you know, go out and get a yacht when I'm 70, but so that I can keep giving back to people and so that I can give to my family by not becoming someone that they have to take care of because I'm not able to yeah. take care of myself anymore. If, right. if saving is selfless, giving is selfless, uh, then, you know, when we do spend money for whatever the reason might be, whether it's a vacation or uh, a date night or whatever, um, we know that we've got our priorities in order and we're not uh, spending first, giving last. You know, we'd always want it to be give first, spend last, because uh, that's how I see uh, Jesus living in his ministry. Yeah, that's good. Bob, what do you think, man? It's a good answer. I, I go, man, I, um, what does Jesus say? Whoever, uh, um, whoever leaves all of these, these things, fathers mm-hmm. and mothers and all of these things for the sake of the gospel will not cease to receive a hundredfold in the age to come. Yeah. And so I would definitely say everyone should look to the future. I would just say the future needs to go past the age of 85. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. When um, I was reading, all so, I mean, that, I think okay. I think retirement. Okay. I think retirement. I mean, the, there's a there's a last third of the life that I like what they were doing. Yeah, I love that you're doing it. By the way, they think about the last third of your life, but I would just say there is like an eternal perspective there, where the last third of our life is not really the last third of our life, and so right. No, mm-hmm. I, I would just ask Christians to like what, like, in what way is Earth becoming like heaven to you, and what are you investing in really? And if that can help people become less consumeristic and materialistic, then that's great. Yeah. And put some of that aside and live on it the last 30 year life. But whatever you've given up here will be rewarded you at some point. Yeah. There's such a tension. Oh, go ahead. I was just going to say, there's such a tension writing this paper, writing this project. And like, is this, is this a worthy venture? (laughs) Cause it's like also, yes, what you two are saying, like, and trying to talk about money is so tough because there's so many different angles and themes, but go ahead, Nathan. No, I was just going to echo that and say um, there is a growing movement of people uh, probably in their early 20s. And I think recently it was most uh, popular in terms of articles and stuff on, um, and I'm blanking on his name, the the, the crypto guy, FTX guy that uh, the whole thing Sam Bankman-Fried. Bankman-Fried. Yeah, yeah Bankman-Fried. Yeah, it just came to me. He... Uh, uh, he and a bunch of people were part of a, a movement, so to speak, of saying, hey, we want to get as rich as we can, and then we're going to give it all away. Now, I think we need to, as ministers of the gospel, be careful to warn people that money is deceptive. And if you think that I'll just give later uh, because I'm going to save now, 
uh, your heart is going to play a thousand tricks on you and you're not actually going to give. So I think for me, in terms of thinking about retirement, I'm not thinking about trying to live it up in retirement. Sure. And I'm not trying to think in terms of live it up now and have nothing for retirement. Mm -hmm. Right. It's about learning to live within your means so that you're able to both give and save in the present so that you can continue to do that all of your life, uh, assuming that God continues to uh, provide in the way that he, that he is for you at the moment. Mm -hmm. Good. All right. You know, one of the things that I, as I was reading through all the theologies of money and possessions, um, which interestingly, many of them don't really do any sort of deep dive into retirement. So uh, I, I found out a little bit like, okay, so what area do I try to explore to talk about retirement? Um, but one of the things I found though, reading like such books as Brueggemann's wealth and possessions theology was how huge of a theme coveting is in scripture. And like, sure, it's one of the 10 commandments, but even like, and then uh, Aiken's sin, right. When they enter into the promised land in terms of what he stole and kept from the city of Jericho, instead of destroying it, how the very terminology he used points all the way back to the garden of Eden. They saw, and Aiken literally said, I coveted and I took. And so even coveting played a significant role in that original sin in the Garden of Eden. I just found that to be, that like, kind of blew up my imagination in terms of this subject and, ter and in terms of the, the tension and also the warning uh, that we're talking about here. Um, so in terms of question nine, let me just ask it in this way. What do you, what do you guys, you're pretty confident right now in, in terms of where you are and where you're going and what you've done so far, but what do you think you need to do differently in terms of this subject of, of accumulating assets for retirement? If I can say, what, what, what would I do differently yeah. kind of financially? This will yeah. kind of answer, but I, I really have been inadequate understanding how to pay quarterly taxes as oh, a self-employed yeah. person who also works for sure. That's a, that's a mess. If I could just kind of go into like a webinar for 90 minutes, my <laughs> first day of ministry and figure out what that was, <laughs> that, that would save me. That would have saved me a lot of headaches. So I, okay. I would do that in okay. terms of what to do differently. Um, um, I guess I would say have the conversation early with your spouse, your church, your kids, like, just try to have a conversation early that talking about money is a theological decision. It's not a power grab. It's a theological decision. And so in a church, it's totally appropriate to talk about money. And in marriage, we got to talk about this and, and just like that this is going to be part of what we do. And mm -hmm. um, but I'm pretty new. I've only been doing this role for three years, so I don't I'm still in the early stage. So I. Okay. All right, Nathan, what, what would you do differently, man? Uh, I think um, perhaps not so much uh, differently as much as what do I need to start doing more of, but mm. uh, I think that I have done fairly well, thankfully, in terms of kind of year-to-year -year finances and planning, but months can slip by, right, where we're just not living um, in a way that is uh, ref reflective. And it's not that months go by where I just spend a bunch or we just spend a bunch and don't save or give or anything like that. It's more that 
time can go by where we don't evaluate, we don't reflect on how we've spent our money and somehow it still manages to get spent, right? So there's things like, even now that Silas, he's a year old. And so I'm thinking, oh, remember how 12 months ago we said when we had our first kid, we we're going to start saving for his college immediately, you know? Well, there went a year. So uh, <laughs> time time can be a, uh, a big factor that it can just sl slip by without being evaluated. So I think part of that is the communication that Bob's talking about. Let's keep this conversation going. Let's mm -hmm. not just let time slip by and assume that everything's going to run smoothly. We need to keep having conversations both in terms of uh, in our marriages and, and in terms of our churches as well. Okay, great. Lars, any follow-up to that before we get to that last question? Yeah, I mean, I think this just brings us back to why we call it the DIY crisis, right? It's because it does rely on you being a little bit self-motivated um, to have those conversations, to be a little self-disciplined. And I know that's one of the fruits of the spirit, self-control and, um, and, you know, we should be disciplining, but how many of us are that great on like our Bible reading every day or our prayer? Like there's reasons that we go to spiritual retreats and there are reasons that we have conferences where they're asking pastors to say, Hey, check in on your soul you know, have some people that you can talk to about the things that are going on uh, with your with your uh, preaching or with your pastoral care or with your elders. Um, there's a lot of proactive ministries that are trying to help uh, ministers when it comes to some of these things. And we're getting better at mental health. Um, and so we're, we're now normalizing that and we're encouraging pastors to talk about it from the pulpit. And I think we've mentioned this in a couple other episodes, but as I just was listening to you guys, I, I thought of it again. We really can't just educate our way out of this. We really do need kind of some systems and processes in place that, that care and do this work for the minister. And maybe it's some outside organizations. Maybe it is, um, you know, I think, unfortunately, still for the Churches of Christ, somewhat DIY to the congregation. But um, it's not just about a match. It's also about, like, helping encourage good saving habits so that the minister isn't, uh, you know, out on his own or out on her own uh, when they move on to that other uh, ministry position or uh, when they retire and uh, now are serving in some other capacity. And, and I think we just, we need to think of it a little bit um, more socially that way and, and push against our tendency to be so individualistic. And, um, and it's not that we're trying to kind of impose some socialism agenda or whatever. It's, it's really a, uh, about just thinking of that. This isn't a burden they need to care about. They don't need to all go get, educated this way um bob you shouldn't have you're not a tax expert you shouldn't have to figure out your taxes you know um would it, what would it be like if our churches had that taken care of for you uh that the church's treasurer um is paying an outside accountant to do the books for the church is also doing your taxes or you know like that those kind of things being in place i think is part of what's missing um as we moved uh from Teresa Gilarducci's kind of pension model to the 401k, the burden moved from the organization to the individual. And that just fits so well in churches of Christ. And, um, and so I, I want to applaud you guys for doing some proactive work. I'm, I'm grateful for the other people we've had on the podcast who kind of 
have shared some of their wisdom and things. And we're going to get to that with this last question, some wisdom yeah. that you might have. Yeah, but so, I also just oh, keep asking the question, do we need to rely on our ability to be that smart, you know, and to be that <laughs> disciplined? Or is there something, I don't know, I, I just, I hope that we can find some groups, some some support systems that don't rely on us being perfect because um, we, we aren't, you know. Yeah. Yeah. And so thank you for that, Lars. Let's, let's go ahead and mention that last question, the last five minutes here. And what would you therefore tell a new pastor? If you could go ahead, go back and talk to yourself when you first got into ministry or your vocation, what would you tell a new pastor, pastor in training about saving for retirement while in ministry? Yeah. Start early and tell tell the shepherds at the very beginning that I'm that you're serious about this uh I will I will say I don't have a ton of personal experience but I'll say this many elders will assume that they are more disciplined with finances than you are right preachers do not have a reputation for being financial wizards mm -mm. um persuade them that this is something you're serious about that you understand not just like a salary number or how that ranks but like that you understand that you want want to be in a certain position by a certain time, a timeline. And so fight for things like uh, 403B plans through the church, fight for a match on that if you can, um, and just do whatever you can do to, to convince them that you have a financial literacy. And the, the other thing I would do, the other thing I would say is offer, you know, you serve before you sell. Preach and teach about these things. I think I think a shepherd who thinks, you know, you want us to do all this for you, but you won't get up in front of the people and make an appeal for money, which would make the elders sleep a lot better at night, too. So I, I would say just kind of put that up front that, that you're willing to theologically speak into the issues at the same time that we ask others to lend their help in preparing taxes and helping us with financial planning and real estate and all these other things. Oh, that's good. Nathan, what do you think, man? Uh, I would I would say get a tax guy, right? Get somebody that knows yeah. ministers taxes. I, from day one, I have been uh, sending in all of my information to a particular individual who's an expert at ministers taxes. And that helps me sleep very good at night, knowing that uh, do I spend a little bit of money that maybe I could save if I did it myself? Sure. But do I also have a high degree of confidence that it's being done correctly and, and efficiently? Yes. And so I, I would say that's that would be a big thing I would I would suggest to anybody that's just getting started or somebody that may be looking for some more answers. I would also say um, start early as early as you can, but um, consider also in terms of your investing and retirement savings consider the impact that debt has on your future um there i get there's a wide range of debt i mean there was a, a couple years ago we saw interest rates you know down in the two percent 2.89 or whatever percent uh, i get it uh, but there are ministers sadly walking around with 18% interest being charged them every single month on credit cards. There are people that have extremely high student loan interest rates or private loan interest rates. And um, just be aware that uh, 
that that debt can have a very negative long-term impact if you don't uh, really kind of attack it and and get focused on that as a as a family. Uh, totally, totally. I know the National Evangelical Association's pastor study they did a few years ago. Uh, it's one of the findings that they saw debt definitely impacts the ability to save for retirement. Yeah, as somebody with school loan debt, still, yeah, uh, it's affecting me as well. Um, all right. So thank you guys for this conversation. Um, I don't know if there's any other final word or encouragement or advice or thought that you'd like to give before we finish up this. Bob, you're saying you're good. Nathan or Lars, anything you want to say before we wrap it up? You're good, Nathan. Okay. Good, Lars. Sweet. So, okay. Bob, Nathan, our Southeast pastors in the uh, Churches of Christ, thank you for coming on and speaking with us and being vulnerable and sharing your stories related to uh, accumulating assets for retirement. We have, I believe, this was episode 10, so we've got about six more to record. We're starting to post these episodes on, on Spotify. Hopefully, I'll get them up soon. Uh, the video aspect uh, part of the podcast up on YouTube soon as well. But uh, you can find these uh, initial audio podcasts on Spotify. But until then, uh, thank you once again uh, to our viewers and to our listeners. We will see you next time. Goodbye. Once again, thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Almost Essential Podcast. If you like what you heard and you want to reach out, you can connect with me, Jordan Koss, on Facebook or Instagram. We hope this series is a valuable resource for you, pastor or otherwise. And remember, you are not almost essential. Your role and service in the church is essential, as well as saving for retirement within your holy vocation and calling.